following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. So we're going to keep talking from the book of Hebrews. And I mentioned last week, well I didn't finish last week, so this week we need to finish what we started. And we're going to end up talking about the importance of church community. But first I want to do a recap of some things we went over. I don't want to re-preach it, we just don't have the time. Uh, you can listen to the audio on our church website if you weren't able to hear the first part. So, recap a couple high points from last week. Number one, in the Old Testament, where we read about the old covenant God made with people, from Genesis through Jesus, we see ways in which God has built temples in which uh, his presence is there, which doesn't mean his presence wasn't everywhere, but it was this visible reminder for people that God is here, God is near, he's powerful, he's holy. Uh, It was meant to order their lives, to give them something to look at. So we talked last week about three things, that the very fact of the creation of the cosmos, in Genesis, God is building this cosmic temple that he's going to move into and reside from which he rules and reigns. Then we talk about the tabernacle as the children of Israel moved through the wilderness. They had this tent. They took down and they put back up everywhere they went. Eventually, it's not a tent anymore. It doesn't travel. It's a temple. And in all of these things, God is teaching us something about himself and about how to order our lives and what worship looks like. Well, after the arrival of Jesus and in what we now call the new covenant, we don't have to go to a temple anymore. There's, there's no places we necessarily go where, well, there's no places we go to do animal sacrifices, that type of thing. But there's two temples that the New Testament talks about. One is us. Because the Holy Spirit lives in us, when we give our lives to Christ to become a follower of Jesus, we are one of the temples. But also the church community is this other temple. And I believe there's a verse on the board, uh, now you are the body of Christ. Each of you is part of it. So individual bodies making up a greater body. We quoted from First Peter last week, this idea that we are living stones that make up the church. So we contribute to this living entity called the church. So the temple doesn't go away. It's just that the Old Testament forms of the temple, they were symbols, they were shadows, they were just signs of what was to come. So now we're living in this reality of this new temple experience. So I mentioned a couple things last week. Number one, a testimony was always a temple. Let's take the tabernacle as a great example. As the children of Israel moved from place to place, wherever they set up that tabernacle... Everybody around them knew that's who they worshipped. So it sent a message, a temple as a testimony. In the New Testament, we hear the language of, we're a city on a hill. We're supposed to be the kind of people that our lives and our churches shine the light of truth, the light of the gospel into the darkness of the world. We often talk here at church about being ambassadors for Christ, that we take the name of Christ with us wherever we go. Second, we mentioned the temple is still a place of sacrifice. First Peter says, we now give spiritual sacrifices. Romans says it's the entirety of our life. I tried to crawl up on the altar last week. I, I won't replicate that because my back is still out. But the idea is that though we don't go and offer sacrifices for the remission of our sins, Jesus is taking care of that. 
We are still called to be living sacrifices, to present our bodies as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable to God. The Bible says this is a reasonable act of service, a response of love. But once again, when we do this, it's not to get God to respond to us. This is as a response to God. It's not to pay off a debt. It's to celebrate a debt forgiven. We don't offer something else. We offer ourselves. We don't give a portion of our lives. We give all. And we don't do it just occasionally on special festivals. Paul said, I die daily. I climb up on the altar and I make that sacrifice. A response of my life to God in love and in worship and adoration for what he's done for me. And then the third point was that a temple is still a place for worship. And there's three things that happen. I'm going to focus on the third, but just to remind us of the first two. Number one, it's a place where transformation happens. Uh, we used three quotes last week from Psalm 115.8. Those who make idols will be like them, as will all those who trust in them. Greg Beale gave a nice summary of this idea. What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. And Tim Keller in his book on Jonah says that our identity is linked to what we worship. Who we are and what we worship are just two sides of the same coin. We become like the thing we worship. So temple worship is transformational. And I I believe I said it last week, but just to be sure, everybody worships. Everybody has something they revere. We are constantly placing ourselves either in temples of our own making or the temple that God has called us to. And when we are in those temples, we are being transformed into the image of the thing we revere. It is inescapable. Over the course of our life, we're constantly beginning to look more and more like the thing to which we set our eyes or toward the thing to which we've given our hearts. So choosing temples is important. The temple is also an expressive place of worship. That simply means we as Christians are not called to go somewhere and just think good thoughts about Jesus. If God is really transforming our lives, it's going to be obvious in the expression of our lives. Luke 6.45, a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. An evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart The heart of the issue, pun intended, whenever we're looking at things in our life that are outside of God's design, it's always a question of where our heart is. We are what we love. And then finally, it's a communal place of worship. And this is where we're going to land this morning. And I think I mentioned last week, when we talk about worship as followers of Jesus, one aspect of that is certainly personal worship. That is, I as an individual, throughout the course of my day, I'm constantly committing acts of worship. This is inescapable. Am, am I ordering my life with the help of God so that the, my thoughts, the, my loves, my desires, my goals, my plans, all of these things, am I orienting myself in such a way that I'm offering this as an act of worship? When someone pulls out of front of me or slides in front of me or refuses to stop at the red light yet again when I'm ready to turn, I have a choice in that moment. I'm going to worship. I'm either going to worship my anger and my sense of self and my schedule and my indignation. How dare someone else break traffic rules like I rarely do. 
Or I can worship that way, or I can give that moment of frustration and anger up to God and say, God, uh, you have forgiven far greater in me. I could certainly practice in this moment extending grace and forgiveness to people, even if they're idiots. Right? I could do this. Not to say that I think that when I see people do that. Just saying, I can make a choice in these moments. Worship is, worship is expressive, and it's personal for sure. But it's also corporate. So when you read Scripture, the idea of gathering together as Christians in what we call the body is not an option uh, that we can ignore in Scripture. This is the command. There was no sense, if you read the Bible or you look at the early church, that people had an idea that you could be a worshiper of Jesus without worshiping in a Jesus community. Now you had, as time went on, you had hermits who would go spend 30 years in the desert. That wasn't a good idea, frankly. I don't necessarily think that's admirable, to be honest. I mean, people are hard to get along with, right? Why don't I just leave people? Okay, That's not what the Bible calls us to. We are built for community. God has designed us to be people in relationships. So we experience that, obviously, uh, we start with families. And then it's friends. And we experience in a lot of ways as we go through life. But the church is meant to be this place, this little microcosm of God's kingdom. Where we're all gathered together, united by a common vision and purpose. We might have some differences in how we understand certain things in here, but we're united around the idea that Jesus is God. It is through Jesus that we have salvation. It is our repentance and God's forgiveness that makes us right in the eyes of God. And that in this process of humbling our lives and the Holy Spirit working in us and the Bible feeding us and then God's people around us linking arms with us and walking through life, this is the way it works. This is not biblically something you kind of get to make the call on. This is the call to live in Christian community. Steady, purposeful, close church community. That's what I'm going to talk about this morning. Now, a couple things up front. It can seem really self-serving for a pastor to say, it is very important that you be engaged in close church community. You're like, yeah, pastor, you just want more tithe and want to see more people or whatever. Okay, That is not why I'm preaching this. I'm not opposed to any of those things. I'm preaching this because this is the Bible. And if it's not this church, it should be another church. I mean, I want y'all to stay here, right? Are we clear on this? But if for whatever reason you end up out of this church, don't go lone rager on me. You've got to be plugged in somewhere. So I'm, I'm giving this message on behalf of church communities everywhere that we as Christians must be in church community. And I'm going to give you five reasons why this is crucial. First of all, because being in church community corrals our theology. What I mean by that is our crazy ideas about how to read the Bible are constrained in Christian community, ideally. Ideally, they are constrained in church community. I think that's one reason God has established it, because we need people around us. So you'll hear us sometimes talk about heresy. When you look at church history, we, we can often think of heresy as this kind of thing where someone threw out this idea. It's like, hey, what if we think God wasn't fully human? And people are like, boo, and just beat him down, and just like that, it's over. 
It usually wasn't the way it worked. Alistair McGrath has a great book on the whole subject of heresy. This was often arguments over years or even decades sometimes between good friends more often than not. When in this church community they were a part of, they wrestled with this idea. Somebody threw something out and said, what if we think of God this way? And then in that community, they talked about it. Now, unfortunately, there was always people who walked away convinced that something that was declared a heresy was true. But the purpose of the church community was if someone brings a new idea, you got people around you that use the Bible, they have wisdom from the Holy Spirit, the Bible's clear that in the multitude of counselors is wisdom, you wrestle through those kind of things together. So I'm going to give you four ways in which we still still do that today. First question, how do we read the Bible accurately? Now, I'll grant right off the bat that people have different opinions about issues that I think of as they're not primary issues. They're not issues that have to do with your salvation. There's just some passages that are hard to understand. People wrestle with them. Okay, I I actually like that the Bible gives uh, gives us the kind of material that forces us into conversation. I think it's meant to drive us toward each other to try to hash through how we understand some things. But let me give you one example. Here at the church years ago, uh, I, there was one morning I did a sermon on the prodigal son or the parable of the two sons. And afterwards, uh, a couple came up to me and they said, basically said, your presentation of this was wrong because in the parable of the prodigal son, it's the father who's at fault. And I said, are, are you aware that for 2,000 years, everyone has understood the father to be God? And so you're saying God is at fault? And the response to me was, yeah, we know that, but I had a dream. And in this dream, I was told everybody else has gotten it wrong. I'm not exaggerating. And that God is the problem. He was an enabling father in this story. Okay, no, that's not right. (laughs) You're wrong. That's why church exists, ideally. And so if we have those kind of ideas, we bring them into church community. That includes this community or whatever church you're in and the history of church community. Their strength just looking at how the historical church has wrestled with issues. Whenever new ideas come, we bring them into church community. That's where we are meant to bring them into the light and have godly, wise people around us give us insight on what we should do with that. I could give you a whole list, I don't have time today, of different ideas that are starting to work their way, at least into the Western or the American church. They're often bad ideas. Um, And what will happen is, and you guys know, I'm a big fan of studying. I like to read, I like to listen to to podcasts and watch. But you can get yourself in a bubble where you hear this new idea, and then you fill yourself with just everybody who's like, on this new idea, and that's not real community either. Uh, online community is different. I'm now way ahead of myself in my notes. It's this face-to-face, relational, diversity of opinion that's part of the beauty of the body of Christ, where we bring things to others to sort through them. It's one reason we do Message Plus. If you've got questions about what I talk about in a sermon, I want you to come to Message Plus, and let's talk about it in community. A second thing we got to be careful with is 
uh, what we think of God's attributes. A hot one right now is the question of whether God knows the future or not. This is something called open theism. And basically the claim is that um, God discovers the future as we do, and he's learning and responding just like we are. Uh, and let me just say that's not a good trend. And that's another good example of where you can find stuff online or you can find one voice and you hear it. But when you hear this new idea, you've got to bring it into broader church community. And, and once again, I think the face-to-face wrestling is important. I think we need to have people sitting right there across the coffee table from us or across the dinner table from us where we're talking and we're seeing emotions and we're wrestling with it. And we aren't able to just retreat and hide behind the screen of our computer, but we're actually there with real people. I think there's something significant about this. Um, I'm in the process of thinking about why this is. But there, let's me give a practical example. If you're away on a trip, is it the same to talk to your kids or a spouse on the phone as it is if you were able to sit at home and talk with them? It's different. Skyping with someone is different than sitting right in front of someone. I mean, it's nice and all, but it's different. It's face-to-face community that is crucial. I'll give you some more uh, examples of this here in a second. The third thing, what is God's character like? So can a loving and just God send people to an eternity in darkness away from the light of his presence or not? How do we understand Old Testament violence? God seems really angry in the Old Testament and that Jesus is really nice. Did something change? Uh, What do I do uh, with all kinds of passages in the New Testament that can be a little bit confusing? And and they can have implications about what kind of God do we serve. So we we discuss the character of God. We do it in community. Uh, For me, this has happened. For one, for years, I've had a close group of friends. And over the last 20 years, and while that group has had an ebb and flow to it, I tell you, we have talked about. How do we understand violence in the Old Testament? We've talked about what is hell and what is hell like. We've talked about the judgment and the mercy of God. We've talked about all these things. And we each, we go read and we study and we get these ideas. And then we bring them together with each other so that iron sharpens iron. You leave Anthony on his own, Anthony's in trouble. In fact, he'll start referring to himself in third person. It's that disconcerting. We can't do it alone. We've got to bring it together into a community. So for me, that was Meals with Friends. It's been classes. Uh, I like sitting in a Scots class when I get a chance. When we go to Costa Rica and do teaching, we have great conversation with 30 other people about big questions about God and about life. It's in small groups. Um, Our previous small group, we wrestled with the question of what does idolatry look like in our life. We wrestled with that one for a year. I was so glad we had a group because the different perspectives on it was crucial. I often found I was more challenged by other people's perspectives than my own. Just when I thought I had thought through this really well, it turned out I hadn't. I had missed huge parts of this. And it was people around me who were unpacking this idea for me. And then lastly, how do we apply biblical principles? And by that I simply mean the Bible often gives us timeless principles about how to live. You'll often then see in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, 
a timely way in which that principle was enacted in this particular community or this particular culture. So part of the discussion is, how do we see what's timeless and what, how do we see what's timely? But one that came to my mind recently was this whole question of, what does it mean to love? So the greatest commandment is love. All the law and the prophets can be distilled into love God and love your neighbor. And I often hear this used to say, in fact, um, Andy Stanley has been making the news recently for saying, listen, all we need to do is love. Okay, but what's the question we have to answer? What is love? What is love? Some of you are thinking that. What is love? What is biblical love? What does it mean to actually love people? So, for example, if I tell you, you just need to love the people around you, does love mean that you just put up with everything and never criticize anybody for anything? Uh, Too often this becomes, I just can't say that anyone else is wrong. And my response is, sure you can. Let me give you the verse, Galatians 6.1. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back into the right path. Be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Can you tell a brother and sister in Christ that they're in sin? Everybody say yes. We just read it. Yeah, absolutely. How do you do it? You do it humbly. You do it gently. You do it with fear and trembling because you don't want to get so caught up perhaps in what you're talking about that it becomes compelling to you and you start falling into that trap. But absolutely, that is one way in which we show love. To not do that is not to love. So in the community of those who take on themselves the name of Christ, love, which is desiring the best in others, the giving sacrificially of ourselves... Love is honest and love is kind. We gently and humbly challenge when challenge is needed. So the answer to the question, who am I to judge, is you're a child of the king. You've been given a standard by which you do exactly that concerning the path of life, not concerning hearts. The Bible is clear about this. Not from a pedestal. Not out of anger and pettiness and all those types of things. But we have been given this to help us love others well. And part of loving others well is at times opening the Bible and saying, Friend, this is not the path of God. And because I love you, I am willing to have this hard conversation with you. There's a lot more to say about how to do that well. But how we define love, my main point is uh, it matters. Totally lost my notes. That was page one, page two. How we apply biblical principles. If I am by myself and just I am trying to figure out what does it look like to love well, I'm probably only going to see a part of it. Just like with what happened in my small group, it's when I ask people around me, what does biblical godly love look like? How have you experienced it in your life? How have you shown it? It's in that community that I learn far more than I would ever learn on my own. Next, this community, this temple life is where we build godly friendships and peer groups and we establish norms. So there's something really, really important about the steady impact of godly peers. 
So I kind of made a joke with the kids going out this morning about following the crowd. I, my parents always told me when I was there, like, will you jump off a cliff, all your friends do? I mean, don't we all use that, right? But, but the reality is there's good crowds that, that we should follow. What if everyone's running away from Ebola? Awesome, join them. Like, that's the right way to go. Right, So it's not the question that a crowd is going somewhere. That in and of itself isn't the bad thing. The question is, what kind of crowd is drawing you in its wake? And this is where the importance of godly friendships and peer groups matter because they establish norms in our life. It is through the constant interaction with people who believe certain things are normal about how we should live life that have the greatest impact on it, I think. It's one thing to go to a seminar for a weekend and hear about what normal looks like in the kingdom of God in terms of how we live our lives, what we love, what we prioritize. And I love those kind of experiences. If I could, I'd go to seminars all the time. I love seminars. But the reality is they probably impact me less than simply living with people who live in a way that assumes there are certain godly norms that are just the way life is supposed to be lived. Because then I more subconsciously begin to absorb this. So I just made a really short list of, of what this looks like. You ready? Is my money minor? It's going to be kind of hard to read this. That's kind of my point, is that this list could go on forever. Is my money minor God's? And what does that mean? Should I get married? If so, what kind of person should I marry? What is normal for how I think about and treat women or men? What kind of entertainment should form me? What is important in life? A good sex life? Money? A hot body? A big house? A family? A meaningful vocation? My character? Righteousness? Cheering for teams from Ohio? I didn't put that in my notes. How should I use social media? What is happening in the world, as in where do I get my news? What are my priorities in life? What's the best way I can use my vote in the next election? How do I read the Bible well? What should I do with this kid who is driving me nuts, theoretically? How do I balance all the obligations in my life? What is the good life anyway? (gasps) Right? This list could go on and on and on and on. Uh, Listen, temples form temples. Where you spend your time is going to form you. It matters where we embed our lives. The the more time you give to people in certain places, the more they are inevitably going to have an impact on you. We're wired to be responsive to relationship. God designed us to be responsive to the reality of people around us. Temples form temples. We will be imprinted. Everywhere we go. So my question is, what is imprinting us? What kind of temples are forming this temple? And I, this starts with children. So parents, we're going to send our kids a message about just how important church community is simply by how important we make church community. You could say to your blue in the face, it really, really matters that you're plugged in at church. If you're not plugged in at church, your kids will hear your life. It will drown out your words. How many of you, I know some of you have in this room, grew up in a home where your parents didn't go to church at all, but they wanted you to go to church because so they knew it would have a good impact. And so you went, but you really didn't have much of an impact because it was clear what mom and dad valued and what mom and dad did not value. 
So is, is church life part of the rhythm of your life and is it part of the rhythm of your kids' lives? Because it's here where you want them to be forming this peer group and this community. It's time. There is no substitute for time spent together because where you are forms you. It's inevitable. What is the norm for what kind of jokes are told? Are are you and your kids with a group of people who, when they tell jokes, know where the line is when it becomes dishonoring or objectifying to men or women? Are there with a peer group that knows, yeah, I am not showing my friend this YouTube video on my phone? Or in a peer group that when that happens, they go, yeah, put that away. I'm not interested. What are their assumptions about the value of human life? And I could go back to this whole list. We are, we are formed. Temples form temples. We resemble what we revere. So I just, I want to issue a real clear challenge this morning. And this goes back to, once again, I fear that this will be heard as self-serving. Or, well, okay, that's my fear. I really hope it doesn't come across like that. If it does, feel free to tell me in Message Plus. But here's the thing. Steady engagement with church community is not is biblically speaking not something we get to make a call on as followers of Christ. It's a command in our lives. It's a command in our lives. It is for our good. It is for our good. It is for the good of our children that we and our children prioritize church life as part of the rhythm of our lives. And I want to be clear once again, and if someone is listening to this on Facebook and goes to another church, I mean your church. I don't mean you have to be at my church. I mean church in general, wherever we are. It has to to be. We want that to be the formative thing, don't we? I think God designed church for that reason. Next point. This temple community, this church community offers accountability. I mean, we're all basically in the same. We have differences of opinion, once again, about some secondary things. But we're all basically, as followers of Christ, on the same page, who Jesus is, what salvation is, what God is calling us to do. And so it's in this community that we encourage, we challenge, we applaud, we confront, we cry, we laugh, because temples form temples. And it's in this community, this community keeps me accountable. So one way that happens, practically speaking, is once again, you can come to Message Plus and hold me accountable for anything I say in front of a group of people. I have individuals in this church who hold me accountable. And that's everything from my preaching, to my personal life, to my marriage, to my parenting, you name it. I have people around me who encourage, challenge, applaud, confront, cry, and laugh. And this is the group that I want to have doing that because temples form temples. And I want godly temples to form this temple. That's the thing that's going to be crucial in forming me. So they remind me what I ought to find entertaining, not just what I do find entertaining. And let me tell you, that's a different standard than the world standard. So this is back to norms. Uh, in, 
If you ask people in the church, just to give a, a real clear example, is pornography okay? No. It forms you. It is damaging temples. But if I go outside of church community, the norm is it's fine. It's no big deal. It's just fun. It's just whatever. It really doesn't have an impact. Uh, Okay, in church community, if I were to tell my friends I'm accountable to, I find that entertaining, they would say, you ought not find that entertaining, and you need to step down from ministry until you deal with that in your life. Because that's what godly temples do. Right? They want to form other godly temples. This idea of living in a community that establishes certain norms. They let me know when my words hurt rather than heal. And that's a different standard than the world standard. Listen, I hear all the time, I can say whatever I want. First Amendment right. You as a Christian, you don't have that right. Right? Not biblically speaking. I mean, sure, as a, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you don't get constitutional rights in America. But biblically speaking, does God say, Anthony, say whatever you want. Everybody say no. This is a clear biblical command. The tongue is a fire. With our words, we kill people. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pitchers of silver. I mean, over and over the Bible says, my words are not my own. They're God's now. I'm an ambassador. I'm a temple. And what comes out of this temple ought to be temple language. So when I'm in church, and my, I have a couple of friends too. We talk about this a lot on social media. Hey, is what I, is what I posted on Facebook appropriate? Were those godly words? I mean, legally, it was fine. But I mean, as a follower of Jesus, can I say that in good conscience? And sometimes the answer is no, Anthony. Grow up. It is not a biblical standard for how you use language. I'm like, okay, delete, sorry. Because I have to, because I need to mature in that area. And I say the same thing to other people. And sometimes they'll say, no, actually, that was fine. I think that was truth spoken in grace. Maybe a hard truth, but it's what needed to be said. But I get the kind of feedback in this community that's very different than if I was asking other communities to give me their feedback on what I said was okay. They'd be like, yeah, drop a bomb, blow it up, who cares? Yeah, we don't say that in church community. God cares. We talk about politics from a temple perspective. Not a CNN or Fox perspective. What should we do with an election? This is where you feel the whole room get tense. What do you do with an election? What do you do with a policy issue? A temple will form us. And that temple will be Fox or CNN or the Bible. Which one forms us the most? We talk about marriage and parenting and friendship. And and my friends here in this community give me temple advice. What does it look like to be the temple of the Holy Spirit in my marriage? We talk about money and things. And they give me a heavenly kingdom perspective, not an American empire perspective. We talk about the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter and immigration and abortion and Gillette commercials. 
and whether or not a baker should make a cake for a same-sex couple and how to think about and respond to the transgender movement with truth and grace and how to address poverty. I think I put up there all the easy stuff. I want temple community to form me on these issues. And the reality is, um, when I talk with my friends about these issues, we don't agree on all these issues. We have differences of opinion on some of them. But it's temple talk. I know that when I am talking about these issues with them, they are bringing a kingdom perspective to the conversation. And I am working to bring a kingdom perspective to the conversation. And with God's grace and the wisdom of his word and the work of the Holy Spirit and the multitude of counselors that has this discussion, we work our way through it to try to better understand the world through the lens of the kingdom. And then finally, I was afraid I didn't have enough material for the whole morning. Uh, We're doing fine. Okay, finally, we bear each other's burdens. So life is hard. Life is hard? Okay, I just make sure we're all on the same page here. Life is harder alone. Yeah, life is hard. Life is harder alone. One of the reasons I believe God commands us to be in community is because God designed us and he knows both those things. Life is hard. Life is harder alone. We need people. Galatians 6.2 says, we fulfill the law of Christ, that is love. We fulfill the law of Christ when we bear each other's burdens. So keep in mind, number one, this means that if I want you to fulfill the law of Christ, I bring you my burden so you can help me bear it. That means I have to be a community where I am transparent and I'm honest and I'm going you to say, I am struggling with this. Saturday morning I had breakfast with three guys here from church and I brought up something about myself. I'm like, guys, uh, I'm kind of wrestling through this right now. They spent like an hour talking about me with me and bearing my burden. And then it works the other way. I want to fulfill the law of Christ. So... Let me know your burden. Help me, let me help you to carry it with you. Now, I can't fix your problems. Jesus can, right? So uh, I'm just saying we've got to be a community. If we're going to make this law happen, this fulfilling the law of God, which is love, we have to be a community with a give and take. To be able to say, I need you to help me carry this. And at the same time, be ready if someone comes to us. And I see this happening four ways in one minute. First is financial. Let me just read this from Acts. This is chapter 2, verses 44 to 45. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone who had need. And this is right after the Holy Spirit came upon them and poured out what we call koinonia, or fellowship. Those words then describe what the fellowship looked like. All the believers were together. They sold possessions and goods and gave to anyone who had a need. And if you keep reading in Acts chapter 4... There was this constant pattern of wealthy believers selling homes, selling things, bringing the money to the apostles and saying, use this for the needy people in the church, which is when deacons, they, they needed somebody to manage all the money that was coming in to help people. And the conclusion was in Acts, there was no needy person among them. There was no needy person among them. Can, can I just say, 
I've been convicted by this more and more that my view of money and finances is not a biblical one. I think I have a Western and specifically American view of money. That is, it's mine. If you're a follower of Jesus, your money is not yours. It's Jesus's. It's God's money. And we use God's money for the purposes of God's kingdom. I'm wrestling with this. Because there's a part of me that constantly says, I don't have that much. Like, but I, but, but I, but I want to do this and I want to own that and I want to go there. And I, but I want, and I'm reading this and going in Acts in the early church, there was no needy person in the whole church. People just sold their possessions and goods and gave to anyone who had need. That makes me uncomfortable. Anybody else? I need some camaraderie here. Is that a hard teaching to hear? It is. Now I'm meddling. But I don't know what else to do with that than let that verse meddle with me. And then talk with my wife. She's already uptight about this. Like, you didn't say you are going to talk about money today. That... That was, that was a joke, right? Um, emotionally, we bear burdens emotionally. The church is a place where we weep with those who weep. The best way to do this, by the way, is with people who know you. How do people get to know you? Time. Context. The over and over rubbing shoulders, shaking hands, talking after church, or before church in the lobby, before the doors open at 955 um, as you're picking up kids in nursery, as you're dropping them off for youth group, as you you name it, there's the rhythm of friendship, even if it is casual, where that moment comes up where you're like, I know this person well enough that now I can go here with them, and then I can go here with them. Historically, we bear each other's historical burdens. I've often said our history is not our destiny, but it influences us. We help people unpack family of origin. We help people unpack the legacy of their own sins. We help them deal with the legacy of sins others have done to them. One of the things I love about small group is how we all tell our story and we unpack stuff and we walk together and bear each other's historical burdens. And then finally, spiritual burdens. If you live long enough, you're going to wrestle with God. It's a good biblical precedent. You'll wrestle with God. Listen, if you're going to wrestle with God... Do it in the company of God's people. Do it in the company of God's people. I have more to say. If you want to talk about it more, uh, you're welcome to join us in Message Plus. Um, And don't forget, Scott's class as well is happening. And there is a class for um, high schoolers as well. Is that middle school and high schoolers? Uh, You'll see it in a second after we pray. Lord... I'm I'm grateful for church. But before I pray, I have one other thing to say. Ted Smith used to always say, I love the church, and then he'd start crying. I think he still does. And I'll be honest, for a while I was like, settle down, Ted. The, the longer I pastor and the longer I pastor here at this church, now I know why Ted cried. This community life 
matters. It's huge. It's huge. I love this church. Lord, uh, I'm grateful that you have called us to community. And then I'm grateful that you build it with Christ as the foundation, your word to steady and guide us, your Holy Spirit indwelling us as all part of this transformation process. We're not doing it on our own. We're bringing messy, messed up people together. And you work in us for our individual good, our collective good, for the good of the world and for your glory. Lord, help us to embrace it. Help us to embrace it. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.